I don't talk about my kids a whole lot here at RUF because uh, it's not really relatable to most of you, at least that I think, that I know of. And so, um, you know, I'm not always like talking about three, the three little girls that we have, although I think about them all the time because they just consume like this much of my mind and heart. Um, but they are really funny. I've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, and they're cute, and they're funny, and they're all that, and they're also pills. Um, but they're at a fun stage where um, we're, like, teaching them about Jesus and kids' Bibles, and, and they're learning a lot, and, and at church it's being supplemented. And, um, and so they kind of have this idea that God is big and that, that he's everywhere, and Jesus is the best person ever. But they also really love me and Sarah, and they think we're awesome also, which is wonderful. And so they'll say things like, Mommy, you're the best dancer ever, except Jesus is better. Uh, Or, Daddy, you're the king of our castle, except God's the bigger king. And, like, they're always feeling this need to uh, calibrate what they're saying based on what they know to be true about God. So they're good little theologians nonetheless. Well, uh, uh, I remember doing this as a kid as well. Well, this all kind of went to a a new level last weekend uh, because on Saturday morning I took our girls to Krispy Kreme for a Valentine's Valentine's date, um, which meant they could get whatever they wanted, which meant they all went and got the most colorful donut, which was a red glazed donut that had cream filling in the middle, but we didn't know it had cream filling. They didn't like that. And after like two minutes, it's just a disaster. I'm feeling bad at the mess we're making. They're not feeling bad. They're loving every minute of it. And, um, and so uh, I was the best dad in the world, and God was better. From a boy's point of view, I can remember doing this growing up where, um, you know, we weren't talking about best dancers and who was the king of the house because we weren't princesses. Um, but we would say things like this. We would say, um, yeah, well, well, God's so strong, he could pick up this bike rack and throw it into the volcano. It's like, yeah, or... And when you got a little bit older, you'd say something like, well, God's so strong, he could even pick up your mom. And you'd do that for a while. And, um, and the whole thing was like, is there anything God can't do? In this passage tonight, we see something that's too big for God, in a sense. And as we read it, the questions I want you to be thinking about are this. Why does this... Why does what we're going to read make me mysteriously attracted to God, but also, in that very same moment, afraid of Him? Why does this make me attracted to Him, drawn to Him, but also scared of being near Him? And then secondly is this. What kind of God would tear down our strengths and then lead us out into a battle? We're going to look at this God now as we look at Judges 7. Uh, second week on Gideon. We'll do Gideon next week, and then we'll keep going for a few weeks, and then we'll do Ruth after spring break. This is Judges 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. For the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say, This one shall not go with you, shall not. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Gideon was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the, sea, is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, and I, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, when they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. And they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel, Maholalah, and Tabath. This is the word of the Lord. Can you believe that? What we see in this passage tonight is that God is a God who will absolutely take away our strengths. Because he knows our hearts, because he wants our hearts, and because he is absolutely committed to using our hearts and not our strengths 
to accomplish his mission in this world. So let's look at the first one right there. God knows our hearts. Um, if you're just coming to RUF this week and you hadn't been following us, uh, that's fine. You can go back and listen to the old ones on a podcast. Just go to Apple or iTunes or Google RUF Tulsa and you'll find it. Um, but where we ended last week was this kind of uh, Gideon was putting God to the test and saying, God, man, I can't believe you've chosen me to be your, your leader here who's going to go out and defeat the Midianites. So give me an assurance that you're with me. And so they do a number of things, and the last one was this fleece test, where he said, if if you're with me, then make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And if you're with me, and Gideon's like, wow, that's amazing, you did that. Can you do it opposite? So leave the the fleece dry and make the ground wet, and God does that too. And so Gideon is surely at this point thinking, all right, God is with me. Uh, This is going to be amazing and awesome. Uh, So we think that this chapter would open up. And it would say, and Gideon like rounds up all the people and they march down into the army or down against the Midianites and they go dominate. Um, except that's not what happens. Gideon and his people are not like polishing their swords, mounting their horses, you know, like doing their army stretches, ready to take the field. They're not at all. And what we see, in fact, is verse 2. It says that the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Wait, what? God comes to Gideon and says, yep, you've got too many people. Your army is too big. I'm not going to use that, Gideon. Um, Imagine Gideon, okay? Like God has just kind of got him in the right spot. Gideon's got a good buzz going. Like He's like, all right, I can do this. He's in the zone. He's going to go into battle and dominate. And God comes in and total buzz kill. It's like, yeah, Gideon, you got too many people. We're going, to need to, we're going to need to trim this down a little bit. And so what does he do? He takes 22,000 of the 32,000 and says, you're going away. So we're down to 10,000. Why would God do this? Look at the second part of verse 2. This army is too big for God because he knows and says, Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Friends, God will absolutely tear down the strongholds of your life if he knows that those strongholds will lead to your pride and your arrogance and your boasting about yourself before him and others. Because he knows that you are, you are robbing his glory. And that living that way, claiming for yourself some sort of victory that is truly God's, well, actually, not only does it defame him, it actually works um, against our flourishing, which God is ultimately for. Um, I was t- talking to a friend the other day who uh, played Division One athletics. He was a lacrosse player at Calvin College up in Michigan, and he was saying, and "I didn't know this about lacrosse. Do are any of y'all lacrosse players or know much about lacrosse?" Okay, um, he was saying that uh, at the end of all lacrosse games, uh, the games end with a cheer for the opposing team. I did not know that. That sounds stupid. That's a, that's totally bizarre. Like you finish this hard fought game and then you like pause and. Sing to the other team. You're so amazing. Great game. I don't know what they sing, but that's what they do. 
Now, he said that he had coaches along the way as he was developing as an athlete who would be super intense about them singing, like full, vocal, all out, singing for the other team. Why would a coach do that? Because a coach knows that given the opportunity, a group of teenage or young 20-year-old male athletes are not going to say those kind of things out of their mouth if given the opportunity. They're going to say lots of other things, but they are not going to be kind, generally speaking, to the opposing team. The coach knows their hearts. He knows them. He knows what they're going to most likely do. And God in this passage knows what, it, what, uh, what the Israelites will do, what Gideon and his people will do if they go down with all of these people and rout the enemy. So God knows that he's going to save by his power and his doing, because if he lets us do it, we will jump in and grab the praise. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians, and he would say, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, why does it have to be a gift of God? Oh, Paul tells us, thanks, Paul, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In the Old Testament, God is saying, yep, if, we, if I give you the opportunity to think this victory is from your own strength and power, you're going to do it every time. That your salvation and your deliverance is on your own. You're going you're gonna to go claim that glory. And we jump to the New Testament, and Paul's like, yeah, it doesn't change. We don't now kind of get salvation by, by earning it or by being good enough or by saying the right prayer or by, by pursuing God on our own volition God comes and graciously, that means, that means that he's the initiator. And it has to be that way because if it wasn't, friends, we would boast. We would have some ground for boasting that it was my decision, that it was my faith, that it was my blank, whatever it is, that saved me. And God's just not going to do that. He's not going to let you for a second think that you are your own savior in any way. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, as soon as we begin to believe that we deserve credit for rescuing or delivering ourselves, we take glory away, uh, the glory away from God that he deserves. Great. We've said as much already. He says, goes on to say this. We set ourselves up as alternate saviors. This is the greatest spiritual danger that there is, that we believe that we can save or have saved ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? I think most of us would probably acknowledge that, you know, we can't, we can't go help enough ladies across the street to, like, earn God's favor. That, that's just kind of ridiculous and antiquated as an analogy. But functionally, we think if I can just be kind of moral enough and treat people um, with deference enough or kind of walk in and socially do or behave the right way, we functionally think that that's kind of gaining us some sort of approval in God's sight, don't we? Or maybe it's that, um, 
you kind of have thought maybe that, that the most significant spiritual danger there is is something out there that it's, that's maybe it's alcohol or sex or shopping or social media or um, Donald Trump or, uh, or Bernie Sanders or, so, look, oh, my gosh, these things are the worst. If I can just avoid those, then I will be fine. Then I will be saved. God's saying the single biggest danger is within is that you are going to be tempted to think and to take glory for yourself and to think that in some way His delivering you is about you. So God doesn't reduce the size of the army so that He can all of a sudden now work like it's a more functional number for Him. He could save with one or He could save with one million. It's too many for us. The passage says it's too many for God, but as we read on, we find out that it's too many for us. That God knows what our heart is like. He knows us. So through this winnowing measure, he takes Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 300. And these aren't 300 like power clean, strong dudes. They're not the fastest. They are water lappers. (laughs) Like, Can you imagine if you're Gideon? It's like, okay, we got those 300 sent home too, and God's like, nope, we're keeping those. Oh my gosh, I'm going into battle with 300 dogs. Thanks, God. So they go down. Let's see, just for our second point. God knows our heart, and he takes away our strengths, but he takes away our strengths because he wants our heart. So here they are. They go down, and uh, we hear from one of the Midianite soldiers. So Gideon and, and his servant go down to this camp, and they're, they're eavesdropping, they're listening to what's going on. In verse 12, one of the soldiers says this, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell down and turned upside down, and the tent lay flat. You know, and, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but this sounds like every dream I've ever had. It's bizarre and crazy. Like, this is crazy. This would have been crazy for them as they were talking about this. A bar, like a rice cake is coming down the hill, and it hits a tent, and the tent explodes, and like everybody dies. That's crazy. And what's even crazier is what this dude's comrade, his buddy, turns around and says to him. Verse 14. Essentially says this. Oh, yeah. Um, let me tell you what that's about. So Gideon, uh, he's going to come, and he's going to like destroy our whole camp, and basically we're all going to die. Okay. Gideon, has he's done nothing to this point. Certainly the Midianites, they don't know who he is. He is He's still a nobody. And here's this guy, so Gideon's eavesdropping on this conversation. This guy's like, dude, have you heard of Gideon? Like, he's going to come and destroy us. Imagine if you are Gideon and you're sitting here. You are hallucinating. You're so happy. Like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, did you hear that? Oh, my gosh. So what does Gideon do? Naturally, he's like, yeah, I'd be scared of me, too. I'm pretty, I'm pretty big. Uh, I went and worked out last week. I did a lap around the track. I would be scared of me, too. Gideon does what any sane person in that moment does. Look at verse 15. He worshipped. He worshipped. Gideon is not a great warrior like King Leonidas 
uh, from the Spartan War, or more popularly from the movie 300, who takes his 300 men and knowing they're about to get slaughtered, like bows up in bravery and strength and also does some other things. Um, like he doesn't kind of go in uh, and rally the troops and say, we got this. Gideon is weak. He's improbable. He's scared. He's barely believing. He needs reassurance that God's with him. He's just like you and he's just like me. He's overwhelmed that God would love him. He's struggling to trust that God wants and plans to use him. And in the midst of all of that heart tumult, he looks at God and he says, I love you. I don't know why you love me. I can't believe you have a plan for me. But okay, you're showing yourself again to be trustworthy. Let's go. In this act of worship, God gets what he wants from Gideon, his affection, his gaze, his desire. God gets his heart. God wants our hearts. You know what it's like to want someone's heart. You know what it's like to want someone to want you, to want someone to like you, to be interested in you. Um, My batting average over Valentine's Day, these past 11 Valentine's Day with Sarah, um, would make me a pretty good baseball player. It makes me a terrible husband, though. Uh, I'm about one for three or one out of three on not bombing Valentine's Day. So, again, batting 330 as a baseball player, that's all-star league. Batting 330 as a husband is, like, (laughs) not awesome. So um, I'll do your premarital counseling really cheap. Um, So uh, this Valentine's Day, um, I asked Sarah what I thought was a pretty good question. Uh, I think I asked it last Thursday, seeing that Valentine's Day was still a few days off. I said, hey, what are your expectations for Valentine's Day? Again, I, I thought it was a good question. Now, you have to understand this about Sarah. She is like the least demanding person I know, the least high maintenance in all the right ways. She's wonderful, and she's amazing, and I love her. And so she is not like... To say that I've bombed at Valentine's Day isn't saying, like, I haven't spent thousands of dollars on her. Like, I've just, like, not done a lot at all. <laughs> so um, I said, what are your expectations? I don't want to bomb this again this year. And uh, she very rightly looked at me and said, it seems like you're trying to figure out what the bare minimum you can do is to not <laughs> suck this year. <laughs> at which I froze. And um, realized that she had figured me out, like just cut me right through with like a sharp knife. Now the question is, why was that question that I asked her so disappointing? Because she wants my heart. She doesn't. She doesn't just want my stuff. She doesn't want my money. She doesn't want flowers. She doesn't want a new car. She wants my heart. She wants my thoughts my actions, my affections. She wants me to desire her. She wants, if I I can use this word, she wants me to worship her. She wants me to say that she's worthy of whatever I plan and, and, and want to do, that she's worthy of my affection. She wants my heart. She wants me to want her. That's what God wants. God wants our heart. He doesn't just want our good actions. 
He wants your desires. He wants you to look to Him as the all in all, the one who will fulfill the deepest longings of your heart, who will peel away the crevices of shame in your life and say, you know what, I know that, and I love you anyway. He wants your heart. And friends, He will take away strongholds, things that you think you do so well and things that you do so well. He will tear those things apart to get to your heart because that's what He wants. He wants your heart because He wants your worship. Do you know that? He wants you to look at Him and say, You are God. I have tried to pretend and think that there are all these other gods out there, but you are the only thing that will satisfy me. He wants your love because he knows if he has your love, then he has your life. Because whatever you give your love to is what you're giving your life to. And the tricky thing about other things that try to jump up and be God for us is that they, they promise that same return, that they will give you life in return for your love. But friends, God is the only God. He's the only God who can return on that investment again and again and again and again. He has deep pockets and he can pay out all day long on you and you and you and me. He can do it. If you give him your love, he will give you life. Take that to the bank. He can do that for you. He wants your heart because He wants your worship. And that moves us right here into the third part. God will take away our strengths because He wants our hearts to spread His kingdom. He wants our hearts, not our strengths, to, to use that and to use those to spread His mission of His gospel. So Gideon's very next move after worshiping God in verse 15 is he's compelled to action. He goes back to his camp and he grabs his 300 dogs and and they head on down. And here's what they do. Ready for this? They have uh, like a candle basically in this hand and they have a trumpet in this hand. And they go line up around 135,000 Midianites. Oh my gosh. 300 dogs with candles and trumpets and they go like stage themselves around and very beautifully and strategically whenever the guards are switching at like 10 o'clock at night they smash the jars so it would have been loud I guess the fire maybe would have spread and they blow the trumpet and they watch the army implode that's it like it's the freaking barley cake, and it's happening. And it, it, they're just destroying themselves. God does not need your strength. Do you get that? He doesn't need your resume. He really doesn't. You don't have to be a somebody for God to love you and use you. You don't. You can take all of your awkwardness. You can take all of your no-friendness. You can take all of your supposed awesomeness. You can take all of your whateverness. To God, and He's going to say, Okay, I'll use you in spite of you. I don't need your strengths. I do want your heart. And I, I'll, I can work with that. 
Meg read um, from Second Corinthians, and, and the Apostle Paul, the, the part of the passage we didn't read was him kind of talking about this thorn in his flesh and how nobody really knows what that is, um, what it was for him. Maybe it was a physical debilitating um, injury or maybe it was a spiritual thing. We don't know. But clearly, Paul, it drove him to a point of weakness in realizing this is a big hindrance, God. And I guess I'm just going to have to accept that you love to use me in the midst of my weakness so that you can be declared to be strong. Do you know the Savior whose power is made perfect in weakness? Do you know that? The Savior who never did anything more strong and significant than when he climbed up on the cross and became utterly weak to the point of death. Do you know a Savior who will take you in all of your weakness and frailty and failure and fallenness and say, yeah, I'll have you. I love you. I'll use you. You'll know, you will know that that you're beginning to understand that Jesus loves failures when you can start to laugh at yourself. That's when you'll know. When you can kind of take a look at your life at something ridiculous you did. Maybe even something very serious. Something that, so maybe some besetting sin that you, you told yourself you wouldn't do anymore and you do it. And when you are able to look at yourself and say, I'm such a train wreck. I can't believe, I can't believe that God loves me. And it's, it's almost funny to you. Then you'll know the gospel's becoming real to you. And I'm not saying we don't take that stuff serious. We absolutely do. But God is content to use weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because as Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, Tim Keller says this, he says, For Gideon and Pura to go down into that enemy camp was dangerous for them, but it was right there where God gave them confidence, where God led Gideon to worship, and God stirs him to action. Take this one home or write it down in your notes. God often gives us what we need as we do what he has asked us to do. That God often gives us exactly what we need when we do the thing that he's asking us to do. So is God asking you to break up with your boyfriend because you know it's a toxic relationship? Is God asking you to not keep doing the things you've been doing on the weekends because he knows that's not for your good and he knows that's dishonoring to him? Does God know that you actually need to stop studying because your grades are not the most important things in your life? Is God looking at your resume and your report card and saying, too many. Too many hours spent there. Spend some time with some people. Where is God in your life saying too many? Where is he wanting to humble you so that he then might use you? Where is he wanting to bring you to a place where you will be utterly reliant on him instead of yourself? Friends, don't you get it? God wants your, your heart and not your strengths. So are you holding on to your supposed strengths? Are you willing to trust a God who loves to work in and through weakness for the sake of his kingdom, 
for the sake of the gospel, for your sake, for my sake. Because here's the thing, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. To try and move through life by, by working from your own strengths is, is going to add up to this. You're always going to be maneuvering and manipulating and trying to work situations and stuff to where you can be seen as the one who is capable or able. You can kind of be the savior of that group project or of that, that essay position or, or whatever. As long as you are trying to live out of your strength, you will try and be the savior and you will be exhausted. Make no mistake about it. Take it to the bank. I promise you. And what Jesus is offering you is rest. He's saying, I'll take you as you are, in spite of you. And through my weakness, I will make you strong. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why we sing about the cross. It's why we, we come and do RUF. It's why we do small group Bible studies, because that is good news. God has done everything necessary for you and for your salvation. So in his weakness, you can be made strong. Let's pray together.